Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosak, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to What's Making News after my um, long service leave break, Russell Hanby and What's Making News. Welcome, Russell. Thanks, Henry. And, and I hear you had a very good time away and your uh, batteries are all recharged. Absolutely. You know, and it's great, as I always say, you know, a trip away is such a great learning and growth experience. But coming back also, it makes you appreciate what, uh, what you have and it uh, gives you perspective on life. Uh, travel's a great, a great thing to do. How did you cope with um, without us for the last six weeks? In effect, oh, I, I managed quite well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> a bit, a bit of less preparation on the day. You see, so that was yes, sort of had a charge yes. for that. But I'm raring to go again. I think. Yes. Oh, wonderful! It is good to be back, and we've got a great program here. We've already talked about football, so we're not allowed to um, talk about football anymore, are we? You being a bomber and me being a magpie. No, we might put that in the back corner for a while, we, I think. We will. We'll leave that alone at the moment. But as I've always said to you, Russell, there's always a temporary uh, membership available to you to join our bandwagon if and when you feel like it and my hand is held out to you. All right. I think I'm grateful for that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Moving on. Well, look, it's been a sad week, uh, uh, recently, um, we've lost three people. Most recently, Olivia Newton John, um, and she, uh, according to the age, in in one of many tributes to her, uh, a lively fifth form student uh, with noteworthy eyes. Before stardom, there was a remarkable girl. Um, that was how a fifteen-year-old girl, Olivia Newton John, was described in the student newspaper of University High School, a small public school in Parkville, Melbourne, that helped transform a wannabe star into the icon she eventually became. Um, we're all familiar with um, her and the impact she had on us via the entertainment industry, haven't we, Russell? Yes, we have. And uh, going back to the school business, the former classmates from nineteen sixty-one to sixty-four, when she was there describe her as being deeply passionate about music and theatre, even at a very young age, which uh, the school nurtured. And she said, she always said she wanted to be a famous singer. Now, the, the, the local school paper there described her performance in their play, The Admiral Crichton, as being a first class. And Olivia actually described the Beatles as sweet, but nothing to go to pieces over when she was at school. And she had, <laughs> and it does go into a, a bit of a boy head, uh, boy crush she had on a fellow who was uh, more interested in football at the time. So, but she started off even then as being, and of course, she was even in, in her school uniform. She used to wear to the television. She was on a show called Time for Terry, among others. And at the happy show, I think, as well. And uh, she used to come in a school uniform and then change, uh, uh, you know, after school. Yes, no, look, I mean, I think the uh, there's so many stories there about her. And uh, um, I guess Greece was uh, the big breakthrough point for Olivia Newton-John, something which was always going to happen, given, um, given the influence her mother had on her in terms of career versus personal life, uh, which has been written about elsewhere. I think uh, she was pretty keen on Ian Turpy there at one point, wasn't she? I think so. That was the one that uh, made the headlines a lot, didn't it? Mm. And, and, of course, it's her work outside uh, singing and acting uh, with her cancer hospital and thing that well, she also noted for, isn't she, you know? 
Yes, yes, a well, yes. A wellness centre, yes. Absolutely. And, of course, then um, she, she, she's battled um, for quite a few years now um, cancer, hasn't she? And that and, and it's led to her contributing very strongly to uh, finding ways and supporting people through that. That's right. And there's parallels with that other person who, Lady uh, Judith Durham, of course, a few days before. There was another yes. sad occasion. And there's sort of parallels with uh, their charity work and their illnesses too, aren't there, with the mm. two of them? Mm. How did you view her? As a, I mean, obviously we view her as an entertainer. Um, how did you see Olivia Newton-John uh, and her career and impact well, on us? Well, like, uh, I mean, she was always regarded as a, no one has anything ever bad to say about her, and she always had that, I suppose, girl next door image, which I know she threw off in Greece when she became Sandy number two. But uh, generally, she was a, in fact, when I, I remember I was I'm a few years older than her, and uh, I had a sort of a bit of a crush for her uh, as I watched her on the TV in those early days. Yes, yes. I think most fellas my age did, I think, you know. <laughs> An interesting one too, which comes out. I mean, um, we're all we're all multiple parts to us and uh, there was a quote made, um, a performance by Newton John in the Admiral Crichton, a romantic comedy play put on by the school's drama club was reviewed by the school paper Ubeek. The paper describes it as an evening of top performances and singled out Newton's performance. Olivia, in line with her character, Lady Mary, literally dripped sarcasm at every opportunity, the review said. Olivia, in line with her character. Uh, interesting line, that one, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, just shows how versatile she was. Uh, not just singing either, you know. But also uh, acting. Mm. And, of course, I suppose it was a bit of grease. The movie was screened again on one of the channels and uh, it beat the ratings uh, that night, uh, this week, which uh, I guess you'd expect it to, you know. Mm. And, of course, um, later in life she she had a very uh, happy and enduring marriage to her husband uh, and, and lived in, I think it was at California, and lived on a ranch and just loved tending to her horses and uh, and being Olivia. That's right, yes. And like all families, she had they had their ups and downs, didn't they, uh, health-wise? And uh, the mm. Chloe, the daughter, caused a concern, I think, with a, a eating disorder at one stage. But uh, they've all pulled through and uh, seem to be worked it through very well. Mm. So, um, yes, look, look in, in, in saluting her, we also acknowledge the great joy she brought to us uh, in, 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 in her many and varied um, roles in the enter- field of entertainment. Russell, the next one, a ghost town. Yes, this is a story which uh, doesn't go away, does it? Melbourne's return to office rate is lagging well behind every other capital city, with buildings in the CBD on average less than 40% full. And uh, yes, office occupancy levels in July are less than half of the pre-COVID baseline at just 38%. Now, that compares with other major cities uh, that they're recording an average occupancy rate of more than 50. In fact, Perth uh, is as high as 71% uh, compared with pre-COVID. Um, and CBD businesses are, are pleading with the state government to encourage workers to return to offices as the pandemic cases uh, gradually decrease. The, the Property Council's Acting Victorian Executive Director, Adina Sirson, says uh, government advice about working from home, especially as regards public servants, has affected the slow return of office workers. And in a survey uh, of workers, 30% said health and safety were their concerns in returning to work in the city. 
and the, the government's three-day-a-week target for public servants isn't close to being met, apparently. So it's a very slow uh, return to work in the city. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, and um, the David Southwick, the opposition spokesman for small business and the recovery of the CBD, is quoted as saying the government, quote, should lead by example to ensure public servants were working on site. Hybrid working may be here to stay, but it's clear um, the three-day-week target for public servants isn't close to being met. It's an interesting one because so many restrictions have been removed in so many ways and it's uh, and yet um, there's no urgency to get um, public servants back in their offices. No. And I think there still seems to be a reluctance of a lot of people to go back where there could be crowds or public transport. As You can see the... Uh, even the suburban car parks, about two-thirds to three-quarters full, and that was never the case, you know. 70 or 80,000 will go to a footy match or a concert with a popular yeah, entertainer or a football match. It's a, it's a tale of two cities, isn't it, in many yeah. ways, Russell? Yes. It seems to be not one thing or the other. There's nothing in the middle, really, is it? But mm. uh, And, of course, the city workers, the hospitality, and they're suffering badly by the slow or non-return, aren't they? And yet I can understand it too. I think things will change. If COVID numbers go down, which is what's expected to happen, um, if it replicates what I've seen over in Canada um, in their big cities, they've got very little COVID compared to Australia. Um, their, their cities are vibrant and thriving. And I think once people feel confident, uh, more confident about not catching COVID, um, they'll probably return to the city just by definition. And uh, our numbers are dropping. I've kept records going way back, and uh, on a weekly basis, we're dropping a 1,000 or so a week from the week before, generally, of new cases. So it is dropping. It's up and down during the week, but it is gradually dropping in the long term. Yeah, let's hope that continues. Um, And they say as we move into spring and the warmer weather, that's a, a good sign too. Fingers crossed. We'll take a short break. Russ, don't go away. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Viewpoints Podcast. For more, visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and all the other places you get your podcasts from. To get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter at Viewpoints Pod. Our host, Henry Grossack, and our producer, at Rob Kelly Twins. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosak, and uh, I'm in the middle of What's Making News with Russell Hanby. Welcome back, Russell. Thanks, Henry. What's all this you're telling us in the bake? What did I take on my holidays? I was come back apparently, um, what would you call, full of zing or something? Yes, uh, very uh, high, high, uh, I was going to say hyper, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's say a, a happy chappy, shall we say. <laughs> well, make the most of it while it lasts, Russell. Nothing lasts forever. Anyway, moving on, the age. Bonus plan to tackle teacher shortage. This is our field. High-performing teachers would get uh, financial bonuses and university fees for teaching degrees would be lowered under a series of proposals states will put forward to tackle the nation's teacher shortage. This is... uh, bubbling along for a long time and it appears to be, and I think COVID has certainly exacerbated, it's now reaching a critic, very critical point, Russell. 
Yes, it is. And uh, what they're suggesting is employment-based degrees where student teachers work in schools and earn while they learn. They, they, they want that to be expanded. And Australia's education ministers, they're going to meet uh, this week to discuss the nation's unprecedented teacher shortage. Uh, many teachers uh, have been exhausted during and after the pandemic uh, have left the profession. And uh, Victoria's Education Union wants retention bonuses now to be paid to teachers for just staying in their roles. Uh, 15% apparently leave within three years and uh, 20% within five years of graduating. Now, uh, ministers want increased funding for innovative training programs where university graduates can gain a teaching qualification within 18 months while working in schools four days a week. There are two major projects called Nexus and Teach for Australia. And uh, so they want that to be expanded. And uh, Australia faces a shortage, they say, of more than 4,000 secondary teachers alone. And uh, part of the reason is that teachers' workload outside the classroom is one big factor. So you'd be well aware of uh, what's happening at the uh, ground level, wouldn't you, in that one? Yeah, look, it's so true, Russell. Um, I've been in the game a long time, and I think I would say it's fair to say that morale in the profession, uh, I can't see a time when it was lower. Um, I'm sure COVID has exacerbated that and that's done that in all professions so we do acknowledge that but the issue is is bigger than that and look I welcome that summit that uh, our Federal Minister has put together but I think the key issue in that is that that's only the beginning of the issue. Attracting people is one thing, the retention is the big issue. There's nothing in all of that that indicates there'll be increased retention. So getting poor people in the front door, you've got to have them not leaving the back door, metaphorically speaking. So the real issues, the real issues are, I'd say, workload, which is partly compounded by lots of accountability and compliance requirements. And some of those compliance requirements have teachers wondering whether they're teachers anymore or whether they're para... um, medical professionals uh, or a host of other things. So there's that uh, workload. Um, and, and, and that's been there a long time. I know we got our 10 weeks holiday, but if you took that away, I think we'd be way beyond where we are at the moment. That's probably one of the few threads that's keeping an exhausted workforce going. Um, another one is lack of recognition. Um, and that's an interesting one because in the early days of COVID, Uh, a recognition seemed to go up. (laughs) But as time has passed, that's largely vaporised in a lot of quarters uh, beyond the rhetoric of, you know, this is the most important profession. And and it's also tied up with what I would call professional trust, and that is the, the level of accountability, not accountability of itself, but the level of accountability and compliance and regimentation now in our profession is to such a level that... Uh, It it does make some people wonder the degree of professional trust that's invested in us by, um, you know, um, the department and government uh, because we we really are on an extremely short leash in, in many ways. And finally, I'd say a fairly flat career structure um, doesn't help either. Uh, once you've been teaching 12 years, unless you go into leadership, that's it, you know, by what, 1% or 2% a year. So a flat career structure, um, heavy accountability and compliance and a, and a broadly based lack of feeling valued, I think, are the factors. Now, 
they won't be addressed by the early part of that summit. Um, and we've also got to acknowledge that there's a real challenge for Jason Clare, the federal minister here, because much of the other stuff is controlled by the states. Now, we've just had our agreement ratified by the smallest majority of um, people in schools I can recall, so it's hardly a resounding endorsement. But within that agreement, there are some major challenges, I feel, to retaining teachers and attracting them and principal class people too. So while Jason Clare can have that, how he's going to bang heads together to do uh, things uh, that really shift the focus and attention from the issues that uh, takes them away out of the equation is, 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 is going to be extremely challenging when you look at who has responsibility for what in state and territory education. The other one, which is an interesting one, the AU saying, what, pay people money to stay? Well, I I think everybody will put their hand up for that one. I mean, (laughs) haven't seen the fine detail, but on first blush, you think, well, (laughs) that's that's a very interesting one. The other one that's interesting too is um, paying um, master teachers or top performing teachers that looks like it's going back to performance bonuses uh, we've had that before and we discarded it so how you do high performing teachers and I guess high performing principals getting paid is going to be another interesting one so look there's an awful lot of challenges there and it's a little bit like um, um, I love my metaphors Russell the metaphor would be look you've got a you've got a house and you've not paid attention to keeping up its maintenance over a long period of time, and the solution won't be a couple of coats of paints, paint and a couple of new windows and doors. Um, this is a root and branch uh, job here if we want to get this profession back to where it should be. Um, it's one of the most important. If It all starts with education in society. There you go. There's my speech. Right, yes, and, uh, and of course, it's the. Do you think that the young ones that come through are, are disillusioned quickly about what they thought they were going to have compared with what they are experiencing? I'd say that's partly true, Russell. I'd also say the younger generation now have a different approach to work to what our generation had. We 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 probably saw ourselves more as this is a specialist. Um, career and here we go into it and we're probably expecting to be there young people of today uh, they're more multi-skilled in many ways and um, they're more um, flexible in where they work you know they're more mobile so Mm. I don't think that I'm going to be here for my days all my days necessarily applies to them so if they're not happy they'll be off and that's That's right and we're finding that not just in teaching by the way so you, you really need to make your profession uh, something highly attractive to stay, which clearly at the moment it's not. Right, and I don't know whether paying people to stay is uh, how that's going to work, as you say. You know. Well, that's plugging a hole. It's almost deficit, isn't it? I mean, it, by definition, it doesn't even sound good. It's sort of saying, hey, please stay, we'll give you more money. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the money's not the thing that'll make you stay as much as that's important. It's what's the reason behind you having to give them more money to stay? It's almost like you're bribing them, and I don't think that's a good thing. Anyway, moving on, we're running out of time. What's uh, what's this hopeful discovery in another field you're going to talk about, Russ? Yes, well, quite often in this uh, little program we mention about medical uh, breakthroughs, 
And the, this is about uh, from the Herald Sun, Discovery offers long COVID hope. Uh, Australian scientists are a step closer to a test and treatment for long COVID after determining it causes the same biological impairments as chronic fatigue syndrome. So um, that's uh, what's coming out. And the finding by Griffith University researchers uh, could significantly help 500,000 Australians uh, battling the condition. Long COVID, is, uh, the symptoms are really bad. The extreme fatigue, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, chest pain or tightness, and it often lasts more than 12 weeks after a COVID infection. And Professor Sonia Marshall Gradiznik has already developed a test for chronic fatigue syndrome and identified potential treatments. Uh, what they've found is similar faulty receptors in long COVID uh, patients as the dysfunctional ones in chronic fatigue, the same sort of faulty receptors. Now, chronic fatigue patients have lower levels of calcium, they've found, coming into their cells and store less calcium, and that is the basis of the illness. And they've found that's similar to long COVID cells. So the diagnostic test for the chronic fatigue syndrome could also be the potential to be used in long COVID patients. And another um, great uh, bit of uh, scientific medical research by Australian uh, researchers in that field. And let's hope that comes to fruition, Russell. Uh, something on a lighter note, I'm expecting to see your name in this odd spot. I'm sure you've applied. Well, well it's literally a dream job. There's a, a dream job as a sleeper is up for grabs in New York. But those who snooze will lose as applicants close today. Now, while most companies have, would frown upon their staff sleeping on the job, the Casper Mattress Company will pay their successful <laughs> applicant to nap and promote their kipping skills on social media. Now, it's looking for someone with exceptional sleeping ability, a desire to sleep as much <laughs> as possible, and the ability to sleep through anything. You can't just fake it, in other words. Oh, now, although it sounds easy, the job has a strict dress code, pyjamas only. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the face of it, you could imagine a lot of people applying, but, I mean, there comes a point where you can't sleep anymore. No, it takes a certain person to be able to just sleep on cue too, wouldn't it? I Absolutely. Think. Well, you were pretty good on that. I people used to complain on your radio program they heard snoring, and I always said to them, "Oh, Russell's got these sound effects uh, machine on," but um, I know that not to have been true. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that hasn't happened yet. Or no. was it your listeners that were snoozing? It might have been that might have been more to the point. But it's often, you know, these sleep clinics you go where they wire you up and they yes. you know, I wouldn't be able to, I don't think I could sleep a wink knowing that was happening, you know. No, no, and then your pajamas and they're all monitoring you. I mean it it's hardly a private experience, is it? No, and that's sleep right. Is a, sleeping's a quite a private and you you know, it's an intimate and vulnerable experience because when you're asleep, um you you know, you're you're vulnerable, aren't you, if anything happens or anything goes wrong with you or whatever and to have people knowing that you're sleeping and they're all sort of basically monitoring you I think is a little bit um, <laughs> uncomfortable I'd find it difficult anyway um, if you feel like you can sleep for a long time Russ and applications close very shortly I mean you never know you might mate, get you out of some gardening yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not, it's, not, it's not physical work. That's one thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that takes us out for this week. As always, it's great to be back, Russ, as we said at the beginning, and um, we'll be back next week at the same time, and good luck to your bombers. 
Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. That was Russell Hanby, a great uh, person to have on the program. <laughs> I don't think he's going to apply for that job, actually. <laughs> I don't think he could snooze for that many hours. We'll do, uh, have a great week, listeners, and we'll be with you again on What's Making News, same time next week. You've been listening to the Viewpoints Podcast, hosted by Henry Grossick and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts. 